0: Welcome to the Black Dog Institute Expert Insights Podcast Series. Black Dog Institute is a global pioneer in the identification, prevention, and treatment of mental illness and the promotion of well being. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience at the Black Dog Institute on the 24th of February 2016. The discussion topic is Is it grief or is it depression? Our panel members are Professor Gordon Parker, the founder of the Black Dog Institute and professor at the School of Psychiatry, University of New South Wales. Amelia Patterson is a researcher at the Black Dog Institute. Michael Dash is the coordinator of the bereavement counselling service, Palliative Care at Concord Hospital, Sydney. Sharon McGee joins us today to give us her insight and experience of living with depression. And our chairperson for this evening is Dr. Vered Gordon.
1: to set the stage, Michael, I might ask you firstly to define grief for the purposes of our discussion tonight and perhaps outline for us some of the features that are characteristic of grief.
2: Trying to define grief is a bit like trying to herd cats, I think. It's, it's a whole lot of different uh, responses to loss. It's the multifaceted responses to loss. You know, as soon as you say one thing, it implies another. So, um, for example, we might say grief is about anger, but it can be about relief, it can be about happiness too. There's a whole lot of um, connecting and somewhat potentially contradictory states and experiences in grief. So, it's this multifaceted uh, reaction to loss. Generally speaking, the more important the loss, uh, the more important the connection, the relationship, the more enduring the relationship. you know, the deeper and more extended the reactions to that loss. So you know I guess there's still a perhaps a sort of a popular conception that grief is just a collection of difficult emotions. and that's certainly true, but it's also a whole collection of difficult somatic responses, particularly from uh, for people from other cultures. Um, lots of ways of thinking. Uh, About your life, and about the death, and about yourself after somebody dies, so cognitive changes as well. Uh, Very definitely some uh, existential or spiritual challenges come up for people who are grieving. What's the purpose of my life now? I was a wife, and when do I become a widow? Am I a widow now even though the person has died? Um, Why would God let somebody who was such a good person die, particularly if that's a child? We mentioned suicide before. That's particularly confronting and uh, gives rise to a whole lot of responses, guilt being one of the predominant ones. It's it's a messy business and it's a painful business, um, grief. And that sounds very obvious in a way, doesn't it? But I think when we, or certainly when I confront somebody who's suffering, my natural response is to want to remove the suffering. And this may emerge as we speak, but uh, I think that with grief we sometimes want to be cautious about trying to remove the suffering because, Um, suffering often has meaning and mostly in grief it does have meaning even when things seem meaningless.
1: I might now turn to you Gordon to ask how would you define and characterise depression in the context of tonight's discussion?
3: Um, Well I have a strong view that depression and grief are quite separate even though you can have an overlap and to my mind grief is essentially a normal process which at times can be prolonged and "Quotes pathological for a whole range of features, but it's a normal process when there's a break in a social bond. And I think that's absolutely central to the definition of grief. Uh, And and where self-esteem or self-worth is preserved uh, for most people uh, with about 20% only uh, going through a state of depression, and that's usually late in the grief process. By contrast, to my mind, depression to have a depressed mood and a drop in one's self-esteem and self-worth. Um, that's just a definition of a depressed mood. There are multiple uh, subtypes of depression which uh, have myriad features reflecting their status as either diseases or reactions or whatever. Um, if I could, I'd just like to emphasise why I see grief as a normal process. Um, if you look at a mother monkey and a baby monkey uh, free-ranging, and somehow or other they get separated, you get quite characteristic behaviours in the infant monkey. The first thing that the the monkey will do is run around in a seemingly erratic way, emitting high-pitched screams, and then after a period of time, it will assume a fixed, slumped position, Now, the argument is that there are two phases, one of agitation and one of conservation withdrawal. And that these are built-in mechanisms of evolutionary importance. The first stage is most likely to unite the baby with its mother if the mother is still around. But if the mother's been taken by a predator, then you don't want the baby still emitting the high-pitched noises. You want the baby to go quiet and the fixed, slumped over position protects against dehydration and heat loss and so on and so forth. And that's, to my mind, the basic biological model for grief, where if you don't have a cerebral cortex, they're the instinctive behaviours. In human beings, we see a richer set of behaviours, but in fact we see some manifestations which are very close to that. Probably the worst-case scenario would be where the mother has a cot death. And for the first 48 hours, she may show exactly the same behaviours, emitting the high-pitched screams, searching the house... Uh, and then at a later phase, the conservation withdrawal phase. So I see uh, grief as having a number of stages. Um, There are three models that I brought along to remind myself. Uh, There's the the, the five-stage model of Kubler-Ross and a couple of others, but the one that I most like is the one by Murray Parks. And he basically says there's an impact phase, which is usually associated with numbness and some degree of realisation. Then there's a second phase that lasts a couple of weeks of alarm, so that's when you get the intense agitation uh, phase. Then there's a searching phase. After that, there's a myriad of features, as we heard, uh, including anger, guilt, internal loss, and that's when depression may or may not occur. And then finally there is the... Uh, rapprochement, the coming to terms that again we've heard about and uh, the attempt to find a new identity. So basically I'm arguing depression, there's a drop in self-worth. Grief, there is no drop in self-worth or self-esteem. It's the pain associated with the break in a social bond. And we see multiple stages when when grief is normal and I think we also need to respect grief as a normal process and not make it pathological, and we'll hear later obviously about the great risk of uh, medical people throwing antidepressants at people who are going through a natural state of grieving, Uh, whereas whereas with depression I see that as quite distinct, as I alluded.
1: So I might follow on with that medical idea and maybe check with you, Amelia, a lot of the controversy in DSM-5 was around um, changes in the interface between grief and depression. Can you talk us through some of that? Sure. I, so, um,
4: I'm, I'm not sure how familiar everyone's going to be with the old versus the new DSM models, but obviously in the old model there was a, a bereavement exclusion. If you had recently lost somebody and experienced depression in that context, it couldn't be diagnosed as depression. The new DSM model, um, has changed that model um, where they've now introduced, instead of a, an exclusion, and an element of clinician judgement. So in a, instead of excluding people who've recently lost somebody from being diagnosed with depression under normal circumstances, they advocate for the use of clinician judgement in distinguishing whether they have both grief and depression or whether they have one or the other. So the fundamental reasons that the DSM panel had for changing that diagnosis related to what they thought of as the similarity between um, grief-related episodes of what would have classified as depression um, and other kind of life stress-related episodes of depression. Um, And some research that they had access to um, saw a lot of similarities between grief-related depression and other stress-related depression. And that was their motivation for changing those criteria. some research that's come out since then has kind of called a lot of that into question, um, especially by a researcher known as Wakefield, um, has done a lot of research on um, how grief-related to depression is very different to other states of depression, especially in its um, prolonged risk. Um, so um, it's much less likely that there will be another, another episode of depression. If the, the depression is primarily grief related, um, and it's associated with a lot less pathology than other states of depression, um, and so that's where a lot of the criticism for the um, the changes have come from. Um,
3: could I just could I add to that? Uh, DSM-5 was actually proposing a far more dramatic merging of grief and depression, and that worried um, a large number of people. In fact, there end up being 20,000 people signing a protest against what DSM-5 was doing. So essentially they're going to merge them. And the big concern was that people who went along to seek help with grief, uh, a normative process as I've argued essentially, would run the risk of within three minutes the doctor dropping his eyes and writing a script for an antidepressant. So this has been the most controversial DSM issue since uh, the second edition of DSM in modern days where they took out homosexuality. And this really united a protest from the public and also from many professionals. So it was a very important battle to be won.
4: While there's, there's that opportunity for clinical judgement, which was put in to reduce and address the, the public outcry about over and false positive diagnoses, um, it does mean that people are eligible. In the context of grief, to be diagnosed with depression, um, and so there is the possibility for that um, overdiagnosis is existing in DSM five.
1: I might check with you, Sharon. You've had a couple of experiences of loss. Can you talk us through maybe what those experiences were like for you, and,
5: and yeah, what I've had two experiences made of of grief and acute depression kind of interlinked and I think it, um, the first time was when my father died and I was in my 20s and um, the second time was later when um, the relationship that I was in had been in for a long time broke down and totally disintegrated um, and uh, I uh, each situation Um, was a kind of borderline grief depression and um, when my father died I uh, didn't get depressed within the... uh, I I, I grieved kind of in a normal way and I absolutely agree with Gordon that grief is a normal process. But um, what happened was I was also about to go overseas and I uh, was overseas for probably about eight months and came back on the anniversary of my father's death, um, and got back and it, things fell apart. Um, so it was kind of, I think, um, a difficult um, a difficult moment because it was the anniversary of my father's death. He, he died the day after my birthday, so it was also linked with my birthday and I came back from overseas after eight months and my mother was not coping that well, really. Um, and uh, so my, in each case, I had high levels of anxiety, uh, kind of not sleeping and not eating very well. And so the initial kind of couple of weeks of feeling his he's, he's loss in relation to my father and my partner, my, the end of my, the relationship, um, was kind of fairly, I guess, normal grieving. And then suddenly it kind of flicked over into something else and my anxiety levels went much higher and that's the sort of not eating, not sleeping and um, finding it really hard to make decisions. Um, at simple decisions, you know, what to eat, what to buy in the shops, all that kind of stuff. I'm not really quite sure what, when it shifted, really, because uh, this, in both cases, is a number of years ago now, um, but uh, there was just a point when, when that flipped was also my feelings of self-worth. So I started to feel... Hopeless about life, powerless over what was going on, on what I was feeling, and feeling um, uh, feeling bad about myself. Basically, feeling and feeling suicidal. Associated with that, and that was, it was very hard for me to tell the difference between normal grief and and when it flipped over into depression. And I could only Make that judgement based on other people's feedback, even if the other people didn't know that I was depressed. They knew something was wrong, rather than necessarily kind of identifying it as depression. And when my mother died, um, and uh, I actually recently a friend of mine um, died, and I was at the funeral yesterday, and, neith- and when my mother died I didn't get depressed but I was able to grieve um, and allow myself space and time to grieve which I think is very important because it is a normal process but it's a painful process and a difficult one and it goes in different ways like you said. When you start to feel the worthlessness of depression you kind of can't really tell It's a very logical place to be, you know, uh, to feel that sense of worthlessness and, you, you know, it's kind of like, well, I'm a bad person and you can't, once you're in that, it's very hard to get out of it and you can't see out of it. You need other people, other people in various ways to let you know that that's not truth, that's not reality, it's how you feel. But it's not reality and so that's where friends and family and professionals come into play. It's hard sometimes when you're, in, when you're really grieving to recognise that you will come out of it. Um, that it will end at some point in time, even if it feels. When you're in it, really in the pain of grief and it feels, it feels like it will never end. And so it's a good reminder from others.
3: Can I just make a point there? Um, I think for many people, it's completely normal for grief to never end. Um, I think that there are so many parents who, who lose a child in whatever circumstances. And for the next five years, people come up to them and keep saying, have you moved on yet? As if there's a finite period that you should reach. I think to lose a child, is completely, we completely expected if it was a good bond that you would grieve forever. So I don't see of necessity there's a finite end. There's some rapprochement, some reconciliation, but I don't think we should work to the assumption that there is an end process that everybody has to reach.
2: And, and I'd, I'd add to that also that it's not just the death of a child. I think this is the very clear. Um, that's a very clear um, understanding, if there's a death of a child we would expect the grief not to end. Somebody once said it's like a wound on the inside, it heals but not all the way. But you're glad for, for the bit that it does heal. But I think the perception of, of the death, what it means, the perception of the relationship and other factors we'll talk about, mean that um, you know if, if it's a husband who wife who dies or a brother or a grandmother, People can grieve also for the rest of their lives in the same way. It's it probably happens less frequently than you might expect with a parent when a child dies, but nevertheless, in my experience, that's ac- absolutely very common. So the person's perce- perception of what the loss means to them, uh, that sort of inner feeling of the loss, uh, makes a huge difference. Uh, you know, I think. Sharon's emphasized me the importance of approaching the death for us as health professionals being willi- willing to witness the pain with the person who's suffering because the reapproaching of the death over it and the loss and the meaning of that over and over and over begins to make it more real and of course that's far more painful in the beginning but it means there can be a sort of a relocation of the person from the outside with all the habits that have, we've formed with that person to the inside. But we sort of have to know it's real. I sometimes say to people, it's like if we break our arm, we, we adjust very quickly, we know it's real, we can see that. But in absence, how do you get hold of that? It's a whole. We just know it by the stuff that's around it, the photos, the grave, and so forth. So being able to approach the death and acknowledge it with photos, um, going to the grave even for children, I think is tremendously important. But I wanted to ask you about worthlessness. You, you worthless. talked about flipping over into depression and, mm-hmm. and how you felt worthless. And it seemed almost very logical to you as well. Mm-hmm. Was, did you have a particular reason in your mind as to why you should feel worthless, or was it just sort of pervasive and it came out of nowhere?
5: Um, both, really. When my father died, and I, I, I think the trigger there was feeling guilty um, about about his death, even though it wasn't. He died from lung cancer, so it wasn't anything to do with me, but that I had gone away not long after his death, a few weeks later. And so I'd been away during... So it was a bit of guilt about my mother dealing with her grief. Not quite alone, but without me there. So partly it was about guilt. And it was also, I think, because I'd detached from the loss. And so I'd kind of came back and suddenly I realised he wasn't coming back. I wasn't able to get to know him or, sh- or him to get to know me as an adult. And so that was part of what produced the worthlessness.
2: Um, in, in With people I see, um, certainly um, there's there's a lot of guilt, there's a lot of self-blame and, and broadly speaking, feelings of worthlessness. So I asked one of my clients a couple of weeks ago who, who has been depressed in the past but says she's not depressed now but she's grieving. I said, what's the difference? And she said, now there's a locus. Before, there wasn't. And so the guilt is about a sin of commission or omission. Usually I should have, I didn't, why didn't I? And a lowered sense of self-esteem. But there is a particular locus or reason in there. Whereas I think sometimes in depression my experience you know, and what you're saying seems to suggest that it's much more pervasive and maybe the, it's harder to find a locus or a reason for, for it developing into something else again. But once again, it seems to be, for me, to be a bit co-located, you know, and one can nudge into the other. I'm not sure how Gordon feels about that, given what you said earlier.
3: Well, as I said um, earlier, um, the, the literature shows that only about 20% of people who are grieving go into a significant depression, and that's usually late in the process. And I think it probably does depend on how you process things. So you can have a relationship, break up, and it may be that the woman who's left thinks, the guy that left me is a total jerk. Now she's neither going to get depressed or grieve. She's going to be delighted. So, you know, there's also the attribution. If you're in a relationship um, where um, you feel rejected because there was something about you, that where your self-esteem has been diminished, then you will get depressed. You may have grieving as well, but the key thing I think does come back to the issue of depression is about drop in self-esteem, self-worth, and if in that process you lose your self-esteem, it's not merely a broken a social bond; it's a break in your self-worth, and that leads to the depression. Yep.
1: Gordon, in your experience, how does grief progress to a clinical reactive kind of depression?
3: There so a lot of conditions that we've described as reactive depression or diagnoses that we've given may actually be more grief states. So, for instance, um, I might have a female patient come in, she's been in a close relationship, and the guy wa- walks out in her completely unexpected and is demeaning and diminishing. And she goes into a state, initial state of acute arousal she doesn't sleep for the first week, she completely loses her appetite, she loses five kilograms in weight, just drops off her, she's walking around a corner, she thinks she's seen his red MX-5, but it's not him, so she's hypervigilant, and then after that she goes into the withdrawal phase, lying in bed and incredibly depressed. Now that is almost like the macaque study of the, you know, the young monkey, it's the agitation phase and then the conservation withdrawal. Now, we would diagnose that probably as reactive depression, but you could equally diagnose it, or not diagnosis, because that's the wrong term, ascribe it to, as a grief reaction. And certainly when I was a young psychiatrist, um, and with the scenarios like that, I might have put, say, a significant percentage on an antidepressant medication. And when I followed them up two or three weeks later, about 80% were better. Then I got smart and realised not to prescribe antidepressants. When I followed them up, about 90% were better. The point of the story is that, again, if it's a grief scenario, antidepressants are not the way to go. It's, then why would you have such a high success rate? Well, if you listen to a person, let them tell their story, let them take you through the agony and the stages, and you provide an appropriate sense of empathy and give them the sense that this is a process and they will you know, move, move ahead, then I think you activate all the appropriate conditions for restitution. And they, and they can move on. But more importantly, to come back to your question, as I say, I think it's worthy of considering merely so-called reactive depressions, and saying, well, is it really a reactive depression or a grief state? And if it's a grief state,
2: then no drugs. I, I just just add one point there. Um, you talked about uh, love being the, the the major factor in uh, grief, but I would say attachment is the major factor in grief. Um, it's not, un- not that uncommon where it's been a completely ambivalent relationship. Um, if I think about a-, a woman whose father has died and-, and she was abused by that very man as she was growing up but still wants him to love her and now he's gone, um, you know, there can be incredible grief there and anger and everything else that comes along with that and possibly moving into depression. Um, so-, so I think it's more about deep abiding attachment. Love is mostly what we see of course.
1: A couple of questions that have arisen from the audience. Firstly, in relation to distinguishing between grief and depression, would you say that changed self-esteem is equally as important for adolescents? Or would you say there are some additional considerations there? And secondly, is this a transcultural phenomenon? Are there cultures where this may be less true, or there might be other things that are useful in distinguishing between the two?
3: Just very quickly, um, I think um, any uh, sentient adolescent is exactly the same. Um, Self-esteem, grief, uh, the distinction holds as for adults, so I don't see a difference there. Um, In terms of the second part of your question, there's an issue there that we haven't touched on, and that is essentially the centrality of how differing societies and cultures approach grief and death and I took part in an in Insight program at one stage Jenny Brockie had, and there were some Nigerian women who, who had beaming faces six weeks, I think, after they had gone through just horrible deaths, multiple deaths in their family. And, and we know that in so many primitive cultures that when somebody dies, there are a whole series of celebrations and rites to passage, and, and the community, everybody's encouraged to cry and get the feelings out, and when we compare that to the Western model, you know, stiff upper lip, et cetera, et cetera, huge difference, I think, in the processing of grief. So we actually haven't touched on that issue, and yet it's probably one of the biggest factors in differentiating h- how people travel poorly with grief and how others uh, move on <laughs> to some degree more, more quickly, whereas I don't think we see that distinction f- for depression to anything like the same degree.
2: One of the... Um most common responses uh, in grief is the feeling of aloneness. Not just being lonely but aloneness and and I think that also probably does segue into depression as well. Um, And you can be surrounded by people and still feel alone. I think uh, people from other cultures broadly speaking have got that covered far better than we have and, and you know, have uh, rituals that are designed to bring a person back into the community in a supportive way that gives everybody a function. Here we don't have a function and so many of the people that I see come along because they desperately feel alone or they're isolating themselves. They don't want to burden their family or their friends. Um, their friends and family may well want to be burdened. <laughs> but they feel they can't do it. And so aloneness and lo- loneliness uh, feature prominently. So I think if we can redirect people towards appropriate supports, support them in going to the graveside, in you know going through the clothing, not having to throw it away, letting it sit there for a while, taking time over the ashes, um, calling other people in to work through um, the clothing with them, uh, working out rituals and memorials that are group-oriented, as far as is appropriate for the person we're seeing, We're on the right track. Uh, You know, it's very supportive. But one thing, older men, when a wife dies, who touches the older man? Where's the community of touch? It almost ceases to exist. So, you know, this is how isolated we become. And many people live individually in an isolated sort of way. One of
5: the um, uh, distinctions... I had one of the differences between my response to my mother's death and my response to my father's death was that I actually, for one thing, I was older and understood that, you know, death's part of life, but also because I was able to um, give myself space to grieve and not, and I allowed people to support me at, um, in different ways. And I really appreciated cards um, and at, la- at the end of last year I'm doing a clean out at my house and I was going through I have the box with the cards when people sent cards um, and other things from people that I received when my mother died and it was so lovely to, to in reading those um, sympathy cards to kind of be reminded that these people had thought of me and those who knew my mother and thought of my mother and it was a really lovely experience. I recommend sending people cards again um, because that's, it doesn't quite, emails don't cut it and Facebook doesn't cut it and texting doesn't cut it. Cards do. There's something special about that. Even phone calls. I received a number of phone calls and because You know, you don't record your phone calls. I haven't got that reminder. But um, so that was a sense of feeling thought of by people and connected. Whereas when my father died, only one of my friends came to the funeral. Family came to the funeral, but only one of my friends came to the funeral. And I had no recognition outside of the family that my father had died. Um, And so I didn't have a sense of other people caring about me.
1: So I might ask all of you, um, so we've talked a lot about the distinction, making sure that we can tell the difference between grief and depression, but they do sometimes co-occur, as in Sharon's experience. What's different from a management perspective? So if we're looking after someone who's also grieving and also experiencing depression, what's different? about managing that scenario as opposed to just managing one or the
2: other that's a very difficult question because the overlap of symptoms is so great that in some ways management is very very my experience is very similar I guess our fallback in, in our service and um, the other ones I've worked in is we we tend to keep supporting the person but if we uh, form an opinion that there is something more going on, a form of depression, we would want to get, call in somebody else, far more expert than ourselves, who then might have access to medications as well. Um, And we would rely on something on their judgement as well. Um, And most of the bereavement counselling services around metropolitan Sydney work off self-referral. So by definition, people who come along and see us uh, have enough energy and vitality to, to make their way to us, and so we're probably less likely to see people who are you know extremely clinically depressed. Um, I'd like to hear what Gordon says about that because he has more experience than um, me in that area.
3: Well, I've, I've certainly got personal views. I'm not sure they're valid or not, but if if I see somebody with a so-called reactive depression, that I you know gave the exemplar uh, a while back, you know the 23-year-old girl who's been left by the guy in bad circumstances, and she's had her self-worth demeaned and diminished, and she's going through this acute reactive state, um, then my personal view is that that is like grief and therefore I wouldn't use an antidepressant drug. And I'd I'd, I'd try and use all the non-drug strategies and encourage her to use all the non-drug strategies I could possibly think of. And I'd be really surprised if an antidepressant had any relevance at all. And yet every now and again I'll have a patient who will say to me, Uh, an antidepressant was useful. That then says to me, well why was it useful? Well sometimes the SSRIs can be useful in that circumstance because the SSRIs, the Prozacs and the Zolops and whatever, are not just antidepressants, in fact they're pretty weak antidepressants, they're actually much better as anti-worry agents and so they turn off emotional dysregulation. So I can understand why in some people they mute the grief process but it's not really because they're hitting depression. The other side of the story is when people have a history of biological depression, which we usually call melancholia, then sometimes um, the threshold for going into episode can be changed by stress. And therefore, um, it's not uncommon for me to see somebody who's had a normal grief process following a death of somebody they're close to, and then weeks, usually months down the track, slipping into a melancholic depression, classic melancholic depression, loss of light in the eyes, can't get out of bed, can't be cheered up, <coughs> uh, impaired concentration and so on. And that's when it's no longer grief. Grief may still be there, but you've now got a differing condition. You've now got your melancholic depression coming to the surface and then I would go in boots and all with an antidepressant drug because that's the priority condition. So it's, it's a sequencing model to my mind. No, it's... A, it's a it's a diagnostic issue at the front end, and then over time,
2: it's a sequencing model. I think when I see somebody with who is extremely stuck um, with a particular sort of approach, like proximity seeking or avoidance, that might alert me then to there might be something else going on that may well you know, fold over into depression or indicate there's depression. So most people have a range of approach avoids behaviours, don't they? they? We head towards the loss, loss orientation, and we restore ourselves to loss, restoration orientation. It's called the dual process model, it's very useful. Um, and we'd see some sort of movement. Typically when people are stressed and when they're, when they're grieving, they would move to, they play to their strengths. So they avoid more or they approach the loss more. And and that's fairly typical and that that would ameliorate over time and soften and you get some movement. But with people who are stuck at either end of extreme avoidance or extreme proximity approach behaviours, and that could be internally approaching, lying in bed all day and just ruminating about the death and what I didn't do and what I should have done and life is ruined now, part of my task would then be to work on ways to get that movement happening towards the other end of that spectrum um, you know, learning how to avoid, as it were, or put to one side. Distraction is very useful for children. It's also very useful for adults as well, especially grieving adults. But for people who are tremendously avoidant and just don't want to know about the death, but they're still coming to see me, there is sometimes room to move in the other direction about approaching. So um, I saw a woman some time back whose son died in a very nasty train accident, um, slipped off the side of a station in England and, and was killed. Um, She was not his favourite, but she'd struggled to keep him alive when he was very young, and so she had a special bond with him. Uh, When mum came to see me, just in the first session, she was talking about her son, but I got this strong sense that she didn't mention the word death, which is not uncommon, um, but not past or any of those other euphemisms, and so... I haven't actually ever done this before, but I took my courage in my hands. I figured, well, she's come to see me. She wants to talk about her son. We're not really approaching the subject. I said to her, I'm going to um, do something here. I'm going to mention the D word. Um, your son has died. And so we moved from extreme avoidance to absolutely right into the middle of the, of, of, of the death itself. I wouldn't normally be as abrupt as that. With that, she She didn't throw, everything in her lap was scattered across the whole counselling room. She fell to the floor weeping and wailing and I'm sitting there, I don't know, making soothing noises possibly for me as much as for her. And and eventually she managed to pull the pieces of herself back together and that was the beginning of healing for her. So this movement on this spectrum uh, was very important and I think she was heading, I think she probably, Quite possibly would have flipped over into some sort of deeper depression. It, the extreme energy was she was putting into not going to the death was just innovating for her, and I think she would have. She was lacking vitality to start with anyway, so we sort of cracked right open there. The estimates at the moment are around seven to ten percent of people may. Uh, move towards having uh, really needing um, bereavement counselling, and probably only two or three percent might move towards a more complicated, ongoing grief. That's still a large number of people, and it is complex. As bereavement counsellors, um, we know in the first session that we're doomed to fail. The person walks in through the door, and the one thing most of them want, we can't give them. And that is to have that person with whom they have this intense attachment returned. And a lot of the sessions are... And a lot of the pain of approach, approach, approach is about learning over and over and over again that it's absolutely real and and learning to tolerate the pain and making a commitment to living. So, for example, it's very common to have people say, I don't want to live. You know, if a bus hit me tomorrow, I'd be quite happy. If I didn't wake up, that'd be pretty good. Um, so to discern the difference between that and suicide, it's not that difficult, but that's one of the skills that might come into play quite commonly and it goes on from there. So it, it, there are levels of complexity and the ability to tolerate your distress for ourselves and, in a sense, to not fix because grief itself doesn't need fixing is, is a challenge, I think. Yeah, it's, it's hard to run a six-session program for, for grief.
1: Was it helpful for you when you said you felt grief, 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 then something changed and then you felt depressed? Was it helpful for you to have that recognised as depression? Did it make a difference?
5: Um, yes, it did help, partly because then I could understand it. Um, and um, it helped me to kind of accept that I needed to develop strategies. So medication helped. Um, but the medication really is only a starting point. Um, so it helped me to start to sleep better and eat better and hence think more clearly and not be so confused about everything. Um, but it's, that's a starting point. And then it's... Uh, I, because somebody had defined it as depression, um, I was able then to go, well, really... Now it's a matter of developing strategies and ways of coping and ways of rebuilding my life. Um, So, yeah, that was actually important to recognise that this wasn't simply grief.
1: Was there a downside to being told now you had depression as opposed to grieving?
5: There could be a downside. I think it depends on the individual because it can be the kind of stigma and that's what I, so for me personally I found the stigma associated with depression and other forms of mental distress um, problematic and certainly in my workplace. We did actually
4: ask in one of our studies, um, we did a big study and we talked to people about experiences in their life um, and we went through kind of their worst emotional experiences, be it grief, be it depression, it didn't really matter what it was but we talked to them about that. And one of the things we asked them at the end of that study is, how would you have felt if somebody had diagnosed you in that moment with depression because of those experiences? And we got this really broad, um, we've never published this data, we probably should, um, really broad kind of um, reflection of how people responded emotionally to that. So everything from, I wish somebody had said that to me, it would have been really helpful, I would have felt really relieved, to this really irate, Angry um, responses with somebody in the room telling me that's ridiculous. I would never trust a GP that said that to me. And it's a really, again, we didn't necessarily ask them why they would have responded that way, but it seemed to tie into kind of the story that they had been telling themselves about that experience um, and how they had been conceptualizing it to themselves. So if they conceptualized it as there was something wrong, they were, seemed to be much more comfortable with the concept of that being depression and they seem to be open to the terminology. If they were conceptualising it as kind of they were doing what anybody else would have done in those circumstances, even when they would have met criteria for depression, often they were quite kind of resistant to the concept. Um, So there was this really big variation.
1: Thank you so much for being here today and let's thank our wonderful panel who gave so much of themselves tonight. And shed so much light
0: on this issue. Thank you for listening to the Black Dog Institute podcast series. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to the series on iTunes, Google Play, or as a direct download from our website. If you are interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.